Thank you. Um, let me pray one more time. Father, please would you help us this afternoon as we read your words, and please help us to understand them. Um, Father, where it's uncomfortable for each of us, please would you help us to recognise the situation we were once in or are in, and so recognise the great rescue of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I was 17. I was standing on the beach in Albania. We were visiting Will Niven, um, who is one of our uh, mission partners at the time. We were on the middle weekend between two weeks of pretty full-on mission trip. Um, We had a day excursion planned, and there was five or six of us about the same age, and we looked out on the beach and we saw a rock, a small rock about 20 yards out from the shore, and we were convinced that swimming out to the rock, standing on the rock, looking back at a camera to have our photo taken, would be a great reminder of that week, those two weeks in Albania. We um, started swimming. Um, You might know I'm not the strongest of swimmers. Um, I was swimming uh, probably towards the back. Um, We started swimming, we carried on swimming, and we kept swimming. 20 yards felt like a really long way. The the water was getting choppy. Um, We kept swimming, and it felt like the rock was getting further away as we were in the water. The rock was as well getting bigger. Um, We kept swimming and kept swimming. And when we finally got to the rock, it became very clear what happened. The rock was absolutely huge. It was... um, It was very uh, sharp on the face, and it was slimy. There was no way we were going to be able to climb it. And it was only as we turned back to look at the route back, we realised it was a long way out from shore. It was in that moment exactly. As all those details came together, I panicked. I was getting smashed against the sharp rock um, by the the ocean waves looking back all the way back to shore I panicked I was uh, cut open on my chest my arms I was seeing blood dripping into the seawater and it was at that moment I was petrified the other um, stronger swimmers had already decided we were going to turn back and go back to shore and I saw them approach the shore or, or set off to approach the shore I was panicking and I was shouting shouting for help, but the noise of the waves crashing against the rock was so loud that they didn't hear me. It was only when Dan Croft turned back, recognised that I was in real danger, he swam back, put me on his back, and literally swam me the whole way back to shore. It was only when I was flopped back onto the the, um, sand, I ran the sand through my fingers. I saw the blood dripping onto the beach. I was convinced. I had been rescued. It was only then, in that moment, that I I was really confident and relieved that I was through the worst of the situation. If you've ever literally had your life saved, you'll remember that moment of relief. Last week we heard about the gospel as rescue. 
because the gospel saves us. It brings us rescue. But the obvious question that we touched on last week was, well, what do we need saving from? Not just a a general tide like a rough sea. We don't just need saving from a place we call, call hell. We don't just need saving from ourselves or our situation. We don't just need saving from the consequence of what we've done wrong. And this might be a surprise, but have a look down at verse 18. What we need saving from is God. Or more specifically, look at the verse. God's wrath is being revealed. We need saving from God's wrath. What does wrath mean? It means right anger. See, when we think of anger, our minds quickly go to situations like the other day when someone pulls out on me in the car at a roundabout. The roundabout on Churchill Road, it always happens. I'm not sure quite why there. But someone pulls out on me and I'm angry because they're not living by the law of the road. And so I, I, I slap the steering wheel and I just accelerate slightly too much behind them just to make sure that they can see me in their rearview mirror. And I'm angry. And you see, it's kind of right because they're in the wrong. But ultimately, I'm only really angry because I'm in a hurry and I want them to see that I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. It's not righteous anger. Or it might be when I get grumpy and and shout at my four-year-old for getting out of bed when the sun clock has not shown him that it's not yet time to get out of bed yet. And as well as wanting him to have really good rest that sets us up for the day, I'm partly beginning to get angry because I want another hour of sleep. It's not completely righteous anger. But the Bible portrays a God who is perfectly holy, unable to tolerate evil, and so is angry with a perfect anger. Maybe that's the opposite of what you expected from a loving God, to be anger, to to be angry. But you see, the opposite of love isn't wrath. It's not right anger. That's not the opposite It's indifference. It's not caring. It's letting go. Just imagine, imagine there's a mother with a teenage daughter. Imagine the mother had gone and seen that the daughter had gone into a purse and stolen all her money. Imagine that teenage daughter had gone into a cupboard in the kitchen and stolen a bottle of alcohol. Imagine that daughter had escaped out of the house on a Friday night. Imagine she found herself in a horribly vulnerable situation, in danger. What is the least loving thing that mother could do about that daughter? Well, it's to sit back on the sofa and watch Netflix and act like nothing's happened, isn't it? It's indifference. Of course, you'd expect that mother in love to do something about it. It's precisely because God is righteous that he is angry at what humans do. We need to be saved 
from God's wrath, his right anger. But what is God angry at? What is God angry at? Look at verse 18. There's two words Paul uses. First, godlessness. Godlessness is rejecting God, failing to love God. It's the, the vertical implication of, of our sin. That is between us and God. That relationship is broken down. Here's what Revelation says God deserves. Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's the picture of the right and perfect response to God. He's completely worthy to be centre of all things, to receive glory, honour and power. Because he's both the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Godlessness is living as though that's not true. As though God is not worthy. Godlessness is a disregard of God's right to be centre of the universe. It's the active decision to try and avoid making him look like the good God he is. Godlessness is denying that life is only found in God. It's like when we live as though God doesn't have the right to our time, our money, our energy, but we have it. It's when we convince ourselves that we're the centre of the universe by the way that we feel and speak and think and make decisions. It's when we choose to use the things he's given us to make ourselves look good for our purpose, for our glory. Godlessness is denying God his right. It's living in his world as though he's not there. And it makes him rightly angry. And so Paul's second word there in verse 18, do you see? Wickedness. If godlessness focuses more on the vertical relationship between us and God, wickedness is focused more on the horizontal relationship between us as humans and one another. Wickedness is the disregard of human rights. Wickedness is the failure to love our neighbour as ourself. Genesis 1 tells us we are created to be in relationships where we treat others around us with love and care and dignity. Wickedness, it's the pursuit of self-gain at the expense of others, of those horizontal relationships. In an endless list of ways it says, I matter more than you. The big question is, as you see godlessness and wickedness, how did we end up here? This is the kind of question that you ask someone when they've made a big mistake. How on earth did you end up doing that? How did we end up here? Imagine with me for a moment, at the office, someone's left a wallet behind. It's just lay out on the side. Imagine it's someone who's been winding me up someone 
bit of friction between. Imagine it gets to a quiet point in the day at work and I'm able to just stroll in to where the wallet's been left out and just take it. Just take it and go out of the office, go out on my own, go to Vista Village, take this wallet with me and I spend all the money inside it on a brand new coat. Half an hour later, stroll back into the office in my brand new Tommy Hilfiger coat and there's an inquest going on. What's happened to the wallet? After some time, it becomes very obvious it's me because I don't have a Tommy Hilfiger coat. I'm not about to buy one unless I find a wallet. And in that moment, in that moment as it becomes very obvious what's going on, when you, when you get shown to have done something wrong, it's like there's three levels of apology that, that make it okay. Let me explain. The first thing I could say was, I didn't know. Oh, I'm sorry, I had no idea it was your wallet. I thought it was just someone's old wallet that they'd left out on the counter that I could just use. And it's kind of almost reasonable if it's true, but it's just so unrealistic that it just doesn't make sense in that example, does it? You could never say, I didn't know. It had a load of cash in that I was able to go and spend at Tommy Hilfiger. Well, the second, I didn't think... I didn't think you'd mind me just using your wallet for a bit. I just didn't think you'd mind. Look, when I come to talk about it, when I come to explain I've I've taken your wallet, I've started using it, it sounds ridiculous, it just doesn't make sense. It's stupid of me. But I just didn't think you'd mind. Or the third, I didn't do anything bad. I knew it was yours. I knew. And I actively chose to use it. But I didn't do anything bad with it. I just used it. I thought it would annoy you and still did it. And then I claimed it for my own. And it doesn't make sense because I rinsed it of all the cash and went and bought a coat. But in some examples, those three excuses, we use them all the time. If you uh, ever hear children getting in trouble at school, you'll hear those three excuses all the time. Ah, I didn't know. I didn't know that was the rule. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't think about that. I, I, just didn't think, I just didn't think about what I was doing. Oh, I didn't do anything bad with those scissors when I stole them even though I knew I shouldn't have done. And then I took them. And then I thought carefully about what I was doing. I didn't do anything bad. See, three excuses. I didn't know, I didn't think, I didn't do anything bad. They're three excuses that humankind do not have as we look at this passage have a look at verse 20 and 21 we know what we're doing verse 20 for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse for although they knew God They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Do you see what it's saying? We are culpable. We are to blame. There is no excuse. Because although they knew God, they actively decide to turn away. What it's saying is that the world itself speaks of God's power. 
of God's design, God's creation. These things are actually understood, even if they're instinctively, straight away suppressed, ignored. The reality is, we do not fall into sin by accident. We know what we're doing. Sin is willful, and so there's no excuse. Second, we think pointlessly. Look at the end of verse 21. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is a careful consideration. It's not that it's not thought through. It's just that the thinking is stupid. Sin is stupid. We think pointlessly we prefer a picture rather than God. We accept a lie rather than truth. It's illogical. It doesn't stand up to reason. But you see, that's it. Our logic before we trust in Jesus, it's not reasonable. It's not reliable. Because fundamentally, it resists the truth about God. We think pointlessly. And we are corrupt. Look at verse 23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. And birds and animals and reptile. In our stupidity... In our pointless thinking, we take things made by God to be our gods. We're created to be worshipping beings. We're created to worship God. We're made to. We're purposeful. That's what we're like. And yet sin, it's a corruption. It takes that desire to worship the one true God and it corrupts by causing us to worship created things. Money. Sex, power, status, relationships. You see, we've got no grounds to make a simple apology like we didn't know, we didn't think, we didn't do. Look, Romans 1, here's the damning indictment of humans. Here's a harsh reality. We did know... We did do, sorry, we did know, we did think, and we did do something wrong. It's an active, considered corruption. And it makes God angry. Well, how is God's wrath being revealed? God is angry at godlessness and wickedness. That's come about as we suppress the truth. We think pointlessly. We exchange God and his truth for a lie and act corruptly. And so look at what happens. Look at verse 24. Therefore. Verse 26. Because of this. Verse 28. So. Do you see what's repeated? Therefore. Because of this, so God gave them over. Because that's what people are like, God gave them over. 
the result is we experience sin in all kinds of ways throughout all things. Look, look, there's two specific examples. Have a look at the two lists. Verse 24 to 27 speaks predominantly about sexuality and what happens. Verse 28 onwards talks about all kinds of wickedness. Let's just look at sexuality for a minute and see what has happened. Genesis 1 gives us, the, in the first chapter of the Bible, it talks about God's perfect design for life. God's perfect design for sex. After God creates man and woman, different but equal, to complement each other, to work together under God, to enjoy him, we read this. Genesis 1 verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Sex is one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. That's the active decision to leave the old nuclear family and create a new one in lifelong commitment together. You see, the act of sexual intercourse, it's the cementing of that decision. Sex is consummating marriage because that's the very intimate act of becoming one flesh. God's context for sex is that lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. That is good design. That's the way it's given to us for us to flourish best under him. For it to be best enjoyed. For it to be best guarded. Sex outside of that context is ultimately damaging for humans. But look, you look at the list from verse 24 onwards. God gives us over to sinful desires, sexual impurity, degrading of their bodies with one another, shameful lusts, women exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, men also abandoning natural relations with women. They were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. Look, here's a list full of all kinds of different ways in which sex is used outside of God's perfect design. You see that in our culture all over the place. Maybe most alarmingly and most currently, this week the Church of England changed tact slightly in their approach to same-sex marriage. The the, um, Church of England said this, this will offer the fullest possible pastoral provision for same-sex couples without changing the church's doctrine of holy matrimony. You see, without fully affirming, they are officially accommodating the practice of sex outside of the orthodox Christian view of marriage. God's wrath is being poured out on us today. All across our culture in many different ways, 
People are sloping away from God's perfect design. Sexuality is just a specific case here in this passage and an obvious case in our culture. But the reality is that as we see, God gives humankind over to all kinds of wickedness. The result of a godless and wicked lifestyle, the result of a decision to make active, considered corruption of God's design. It's that God gives us over to the fruit of our choice. We see a culture in which God's good design for life is undermined, is constantly questioned. And look at verse 32. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The trajectory is clear. These things deserve death. And not just death, but judgment. God's continued right anger. Look, as we read these words, they're heavy and they're hard-hitting. They leave us all guilty. What hope do we have? She just sat in the room this afternoon feeling absolutely battered by these words, confused, questions, overwhelmed by what Paul describes. Just read back to verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Do you see, the good news about Jesus is effective for us. If today we see the depth of our situation, then we see how the effective the good news of Jesus is for us in three specific ways. First, the gospel saves us from God's right anger. We will stand before God one day. We will. And his righteous anger will either rest on our shoulders or on Jesus on the cross. God won't stand idly by. The petrifying thing about God's judgment is that God will deal with injustice. But if the gospel has gripped our hearts and we follow Jesus, we can approach that day safe and not scared. Because we can have complete confidence that though we don't deserve it, though we failed and fallen short in so many of those ways that we've just read, we have had a substitute for us. We take Jesus' place as he took ours. Second, the gospel saves us from futile thinking in our foolish hearts. See, the good news about Jesus means that when we trust him, we've been brought to new life and so we have a new heart no longer foolish and futile but beginning to be able to discern what is good right and true as God reveals himself and his truth we're able to think clearly and the gospel It saves us from worshipping other things. 
It's damaging for us to worship created things. It's painful. It leaves us empty. You'll know that. And yet we can't stop ourselves. Do you have a painful addiction to worrying about how people see you? Are you addicted to what you might be able to achieve? Can you just not stop comparing salaries? What is it that you worship? See, with a new heart, our affections are being changed to choose to give God glory, honour and power in all things. And so our hearts, more and more, they'll be satisfied. That's a work in progress. But if we trust in Jesus, we are being transformed. You see, when there was nothing we could do, nothing we could do for ourselves, God, in his grace, gives us the life-saving gospel completely transforming our desperate, desperate situation. It rescues, it changes, and it transforms. Have you accepted that rescue? And if you have, have you recognised just how much you've been rescued from? Have you today seen the scope of God's rescue in the Lord Jesus? Let me pray. Father, we, we come before you and we want to admit that in so many ways we have fallen far short of your perfect design. And Father, today we want to admit that that's not right. And we want to acknowledge that we deserve your right anger. But Lord, today... Please would you fill our hearts with the joy that comes from knowing Jesus personally, our rescuer. That we see the amazing rescue that we have in him and be able to praise and worship you. Amen. We're going to sing together a song that speaks of the only way in which we can be saved. You alone can rescue. Let's sing. Let's stand and sing together. Yeah.